0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January the 24th, 2017. If I sound in a good mood, it's because today we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects in the world. Fishing, yes. Fishing for pescados. What's a pescado? It's a fish. It's Spanish for fish. Yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to talk today about catching pescados, but we're going to talk about the fish that most people don't really care about. Fish like bullhead catfish and white bass and gaff top catfish and whiting that are actually called gulf kingfish, which sounds cooler, but they're confused with another actual sporting kingfish. So stuff like that, not just how to find them and how to catch them and why you'd want to, but what to do with them and how to eat them. I'm going to make you hungry today with a fish that you'd probably call a mudcat. It's not a mud cat, dummy. It's a catfish. You just don't know what to do with it. We'll talk about all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is JM Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's T-S-P-B-I-Z to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory member of the day is Benjamin Elfson, the author of the award-winning prepper-themed children's book, The Land Without Color. You can get his book by following the link to his site from tspbiz.com. Let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1937, because the episode is 1937. I have two from Alex Shrug today. We have the Nanking event. And the Nazis hire a solutions company. It's 1937. Everybody knows that the world is headed for a war where tens of millions of people will die. Um, and we're kind of bouncing between uh, Japan and uh, Germany. So today we'll stick with Germany. Before I read the part on Germany, though, notable births. Colin Powell is born this year, uh, U.S. Army General and Secretary of State. Saddam Hussein, President of Iraq, is born this year. Entertainment. Bill Cosby, who's living. A comedian, and actor, the spy. Uh, I spy in The Cosby Show. Morgan Freeman living. He played God and Bruce Almighty and plays the president and everything else. Jane Fonda, who's living. Um, who was in Barbarella and the China Syndrome. George Takai living. Star Trek's Mr. Sulu. FBR sent him to a concentration camp. Apparently the five-year-old Japanese-American boy posed security risk to the United States. I'm appalled. Funny that Takai is a die-hard Democrat today, though, just saying. George Carlin was born this year. Who He said the following, when fascism, when fascism comes to America, it will not be in brown or black shirts. It will not be in jackboots. It will be in Nike sneakers and smiley shirts. Yeah, there's a lesson there. Unfortunately, of all those people, the one that's not living is Mr. Carlin. He was a real truth-teller. In other news, Edward Landfound's Polaroid, The Hindenburg disaster occurs, oh the humanity, cried Hubert Morrison, and the the sale of cannabis is now taxable. Of course, possession is also illegal, but for the medical research, it's taxable. You're starting to see the whole war on cannabis take shape, too. Anyway, the Nazis hire a solutions company. Yes, it's another episode of How Much Worse Can the Nazis Get?, For example, if you don't salute properly, you probably get a punch in the nose at minimum. More likely a beating. Reverend Martin Niemoller was promised protection for the church. After all, the soul of Germany is in danger from the godless communists. The communist, communist socialists are aggressive atheists, so his worry is real. Now the reverend has been arrested for activities against the state. He will be sent to a concentration camp and write the famous speech that starts, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Of course, keeping track of communists, Jews, and rebellious reverends would be an impossible task without the wonder of the age. The IBM tabulating machine. They keep tabs on people by occupation, race, and religion. The punch cards run through a sorter and identify people who would otherwise slip through the cracks. IBM's Thomas J. Watson will be honored by the Nazis with the Order of the German Eagle this year and for the punch and card solution to their Jewish people. Yeah. All these years later, it's embarrassing, isn't it? I'm not sure what Watson's motivation was for accepting the award. He tried to give the award back later, but he failed to do so for reasons that seemed good at the time. Now they seem less good. I am Jewish. This is, by the way, Alex's take, right? I am Jewish, and I have Jewish friends who work for your IBM. I'm not putting down the current company. Companies often last longer than the people who made those critical business decisions. Mercedes-Benz and Volkswagen are other companies of Nazi-collaborating companies from which I would gladly use their products. Why? Because it is the decisions the company make today, for that that matter. For years, the only companies that would sell cars to Israel were Mercedes-Benz and Subaru. Today, Israel buys German submarines, so make your own decisions. But I have no problem buying German if it makes practical sense. Indeed, uh, I, the reason I chose this to talk about today is Alex's take. So, you know, why did Watson accept this uh, this award from Germany? Well, it was 1937. It, 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 in this country, first of all, there was a lot of anti-Semitism among the mainstream people. We, we, don't, we don't want to forget about that and a lot of like things like eugenics and other things too, right? Uh, so it wasn't that big a deal that maybe Germany was anti-Semitic to a business person in America. Just saying. but The other reason is, like, we didn't even know the, the the totality of what Germany was doing until the end of the war when camps were liberated. But in 1937, when this was done, I would give Watson some level of partial plausible deniability. But... The bigger thing is, there was actually a fairly pro-German sentiment in the United States at this time. Uh, a movie series that you you might enjoy is Band of Brothers. It was made by Tom Hanks for HBO, and in that uh, series, it's like the third or fourth episode after the D-Day, like right after the D-Day invasion, that they have some prisoners, and uh, some of them are German, and one of them speaks English and talks to a guy. It turns out he's an American that went over to Germany to help. Uh, before the war with the United States started, that kind of thing really happened. There's a lot of gray in this area. Now, what happened as far as the evil that the Nazis did was black and white, but the knowledge from afar, there was a lot of people that were complicit in things, but they didn't know the totality of what they were complicit in, if that makes sense, and we're to understand the time. My take by Jack Spearco. And Folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to Learn More. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC, service discount, in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and sign up. With that knocked out, let's get into our main topic, going after the elusive Piscato, a.k.a. fishes. So the, the reason I'm talking about this today is a friend and I have been talking about fishing a lot lately. It's still cold, the winds are stupid this time of year here, but man, I've got the bug for fishing. It's likely I'm going to be investing in a boat in March, and we'll be hitting some of the bigger lakes in the area. But you know what? I really do love the simplicity of bank fishing and shore fishing, which is most of what we're going to talk about today. Something about the simplicity, park the car or the truck, a short walk with your gear and a cooler, maybe a few beers, and hopefully some stuff worth frying up at the day's end. With surf fishing, it's a long drive, but the experience is even better. You know, standing up to your, your waist while schools of fish swim by and the occasional shark cruises by, and no, I'm not kidding about that. And then the anticipation of never knowing what you might catch next when you're fishing in the ocean. When I look around, though, fishing's become a massive industry, even at what we would call the recreational level. Do you know what, guys? I know people with $55,000 and up bass boats, filled up with $15,000 or more in gear and tackle. And once again, I'm not kidding about that. I know people that have more money in their bass boat, in their fishing gear, than I had at one time in a house. I I I swear to God. And it doesn't make sense to me. And these people fish constantly, and they never keep a fish. Yeah, They they turn around and refer to fish like sand bass and bullheads as trash fish. How would they know? They, they don't even eat the bass that they spend $75,000 a year going after. Um, and I don't know. Perhaps it was growing up without a lot, but I did have a love for the outdoors, and maybe that's what keeps me grounded. Um, and I'm a guy, I mean, I've been offshore for marlin. I've been to the Florida Bays catching snook longer than my leg. I, I fished Gantun Lake in Panama on the Panama Canal system uh, it caught massive peacock bass and other tropical species. I've, I've hiked deep into the mountains and fished for brook trout. The, to the day I caught them, I'd probably never seen a hook in their existence. I, and there's more. I, I've quite literally at times been somebody you could have called an adventure fisherman, especially as I became a little more successful and could hire guides and stuff like that. I've gone after some of the coolest fish species in the world, and I love it. And I have a lot of friends like that. And where I differ with them is I still enjoy sitting in a boat over a hump and bouncing slabs for sand bass. Or just sitting at a small stock pond that I can throw a rock across catching bullhead catfish. Or fishing a backwater creek for various perch, brim, and sunfish, or whatever you want to call them. And don't get into the argument with me about what a perch is. I know what a perch is, but you know what people call little sunfish across the country changes based on where you are. I also enjoy standing in the surf and catching whiting and hardheads and gaff tops. Those are different catfish we'll talk about today. And in many ways, it is these fish that I most enjoy eating. They're small. They're tasty. They're fast to clean. They have a great size to yield ratio. What I mean by that is... You know, sometimes you get a really big fish. You look at the meat that comes off it, and what's left is waste—the size of the head and all. It doesn't seem very ethical at times to me. To certain fish, but these little fish, you get a pretty good yield versus what you know the total size of the fish is. Um, and you literally can't harm their populations with hook and line. Now You could go out and gill net them or something, and you could you could do some damage to them. But when it comes to bullheads and and bluegills and stuff like that, you know, hook there, there's honestly not enough people fishing for them to get enough of a healthy, larger fish population in many instances. There's not enough of them being harvested, so their growth gets stunted. So you're actually helping by using the resource. So that's part of why I really love this stuff. Let's start off. I've done shows on full gear before, and I'll I'll look a couple of those shows up and link to them in the show notes today for you. But I want to give you like some basic gear for this type of fishing. When I'm doing this type of fishing, I go from kind of an ultralight rod you know, five and a half, six foot rod with a reel about the size of a, of a robin's egg, maybe a little bit bigger than no, a chicken's egg, I guess, on it, and about four to six pound line for the really small stuff. And then to like a, a, a light action to medium light action six foot rod, I generally like to stick to open face spinning reels, uh, something like a Mitchell 300, and fishing anywhere from six to 12 to, into the surf up to 18 pound plain monofilament line. When it comes to sand bass that we'll talk about a little bit today, if I'm slabbing for them out of a boat, which is like the only real boat fishing we're going to talk today, I like to go to a good stiff bait casting rod. Not so much because the fish are large, but because it gives you a much better control over a heavy slab. And and that's pretty much it. Hooks, I'll talk about some specific gear when we get to the different fish. There are some different fishing uh, hooks, rigs, and and things that I uh, use depending on what I'm targeting but that's the, pretty much the basics of it. And then there's some things that I'll use occasionally for chum. Uh, I like to take along a cooler. Uh, and and, and I, if I am at a place where I don't want to drag a big cooler down, but I want to have a big cooler up at the truck, if I think I'm going to catch a lot of fish, if I get the cooler that I have with me uh, really full of certain fish I think need to be on ice right away, then I'll take them up to the truck and go back down and fish. So, you know, a cooler a chair especially uh for your your freshwater fishing good for your saltwater stuff too because when you're not standing in the surf come take a break um and and, and that's about it you know a snack a couple beers uh various you know, split shots uh bait casting sinkers generally the gear that i take to fish most of this stuff instead of a big tackle box one or two of the small uh like the white Um, inlay box like they use to put in the fishing bags and stuff like that that you get for a few bucks at sporting goods stores is enough to carry all the gear that i need a decent knife your regular edc stuff that's it um i'm a big fan of if you if you're at a place where it makes practical sense and you're not going to attract snakes or gators or turtles uh using stringers for your fish and keeping them alive in the water that you caught them in until until the last minute uh, so I'm a big fan of a stringer or some sort of a stringer-type solution, or a fish basket, a wire fish basket. And we'll talk about a cool thing you can do with those today. I've never tried it, but I do remember it on TV, and I know they make a purpose-built thing to do it with now, but we'll tell you that as a little secret uh, later on today. That's kind of the stuff. Uh, finding places to fish. I think it's important that if you want to make this type of fishing part of your daily life, check right under your nose. It's been a little more difficult for me to find places like this where I live now up here in, in near Azle, Texas. When I lived in Arlington, and I have some videos out on my YouTube channel of some backwater creeks and things like that, there were places to fish that were less than five minutes from my house. They were little parks. Usually when you went there, there was some guy fishing with his kid, trying to catch a little bluegill about the size of, you know, his thumb, uh, with a bobber the size of a softball on it, and you felt bad for him, but you stayed out of it. And there might be a couple kids here and there, and very few people actually fished the ponds in these parks. And when I started, you know, discovering what was in there, they were full of bullheads, they were full of channel cats, they were full of different types of sunfish. And the backwater creeks, in some ways, were even better. And then there were some some ponds along this path through this three-mile-long park system uh, that nobody fished. And they were full of different fish. And and they just didn't look like they would be. And then just down the road uh, from, from the area I'm talking about now, there was a place where a creek crossed a road. And usually if a creek crosses a road... That, that, that area is public easement on the sides of those roads, and you can go down and fish there. And it was a little bitty creek, but it kind of like made a small pond on both sides of this culvert that went under this road, and one day I'm like, I wonder if there's fish in there. And there wasn't nothing big in there, but there were, there were, you know, various, what we call perch in Texas, what you call brim in Florida, bluegills and other small sunfish, and, and bullhead catfish. And I'm looking around right now trying to find more places like this. So try to find places, sometimes uh, apartment complexes have ponds, and a lot of those places you can't fish unless you're a resident, and a lot of places you can. They just don't care if you don't cause any problems or leave a mess or something like that. And if you're doing that and you're not a resident, and this would be for non-gated places, being a little less um, obvious about bringing stuff in, you, just a rod, you know, maybe a stringer and a small cooler and a chair, and keep it very, very minimalistic with your equipment, you're less likely to kind of attract attention uh, if there is any problems there that you didn't know about, right? Since so it's, just, it's just a pond. I was just fishing here. And there's often places where there's ponds, public parks, and things like that. And if you use some of the tactics I'm going to talk about today, uh, you may be able to catch fish where people don't really think it's a good place to fish because they just don't know how to fish. Creeks are great. When you can find creeks, a lot of times you find creeks and think, well, it's, it's too small. If you can find public access area along creek systems, and you follow them long enough, inevitably, even the smallest creek, you'll find deep holes. And and the beauty of that is whatever lives in that creek goes in that hole. And sometimes those creeks are fairly uh, full in the spring, but in the drier season, they, they get skinnier and skinnier in their water, and the fish concentrate more and more in those holes. The same can be said with small rivers and streams and things like that. And this varies a lot across the country. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas. Most of what I'm going to talk about today is more more true of places like Texas and Florida than Pennsylvania, but all of these things can also be true in Florida. Species, generally, a little bit more, to some degree, slanted towards southern species. Okay, So check everywhere. And, you know... Realize that the stuff that's posted online, like this is a great spot. Well, everybody knows that spot. It's finding these little backwaters, little eddies, little ponds that nobody really pays attention to. Sometimes old quarries, uh old uh like like gravel quarries and things like that. Sometimes you gotta be careful with water quality, but but old like industrial sites, if they weren't chemical industrial sites, if they you're just things a lot of times they'll have ponds around them and things like that. Office parks often have ponds. Sometimes it's okay to fish there, sometimes it's not. Generally, you can get an answer pretty quick. Is there any harm if I fish here? And and if you ask in 10 places and two say yes, and the other eight tell you to go pound sand, you found two new places to fish. So, So kind of think that way with finding spots. I want to talk before we get into some species that I like to target. How do you actually target a species? Um... It's really not complicated, but have you ever wondered, have you ever watched like a fishing show and the guy's like, and, and they're not just catching largemouth bass, right? Today we're going to go out and catch walleyes. And then they go out and like, they catch walleyes. Maybe occasionally they pick up a stray fish that's not what they were after, but they pick up walleyes. Or you hire a guide around here to go fishing for sand bass and it's, it's not the time of year when they're going upstream and they're like catching like stupid salmon that bite anything that flashes in front of them. They go out on this huge lake and then they catch 99% of what they catch are sand bass. Or you go out to fish in the ocean and you say, today we're really targeting whiting. And it's the easy fish to catch, but man, you just start catching whiting after whiting. after. And well, once in a while you might pick up a croaker or a, a, a drum or something like that, but like nine out of those ten fish are whiting. Have you ever wondered how fishermen that actually go out and say, I'm going after this particular fish, and, and not just on rare occasions, but over and over and over again can go target those species, I think a lot of people think it's, well, they know a good spot. And there's something to be said for that. But how do you find the good spot? I'll give you four words. If you remember these four words, you'll be able to figure out at least how to target any species that's targetable in your area. They are habits, patterns, season, and diet. That's that's all you really need to know. Some of them might seem like they're the same thing. They're not. I'll try to break them down and explain them to you really, really easily in bullet point uh, format here. Habits habits are how this fish behaves. does it feed on the surface? does it feed on the bottom? does it feed in suspended water does it does it do better when the water is cold or warm? Does it like cover or does it like open water? Does it like a muddy surface or does it like a gravel surface okay these they start to key in on your spots does it does it like does, does it relate to structure? Well, the answer is all fish relate to structure somehow well, what type of structure does it relate to? what are the things that make this creature what it is what are its habits the next one is patterns and you might think that again you hear where you might think patterns is the same as habits so uh, a pattern might be the, the the fish are on a windy rocky point that the wind's blowing up against sandbass will do that because it will blow shad up against there and they will go up there and they will feed on those shad okay but it's not just a habit It's a pattern because it's not universal. Only when the conditions are in that specific way, they'll pattern that way. So if there's a certain time of the day where it gets windy regularly in a lake with a lot of shad and sand bass, and you find those points, those fish will be there by pattern at that time. So we start by knowing their habitats, and then we determine their pattern throughout the day. The next is seasons, and this really sort of is the same as patterns, but it's patterns at a macro level. So what time of year do these patterns and habitats end up with fish in a specific place that we can go get them, right? Or when do fish run for certain things? Like when you look into saltwater and surf fishing, there's times of the year when certain species just do not exist near shore in a specific area. And then there's other times when they're running through their massive numbers because of migration or because of spawning activity or something like that. Or there's fish that when the water goes below a certain temperature, they just go dormant. You can hit them in the head with a bait and they'll just move over to the side if it wakes them up. And they're just not going to eat. Or they go down into the mud and you can't get to them. And there's certain fish that when the water gets to a certain temperature, they'll suspend in what's called the thermocline, which is in most lakes around here, around 18 to 22 feet. And what that means is you go below the thermocline and you have very low oxygen levels. You go in the thermocline, and just at the top of the thermocline, you have good, decent oxygen levels and the coolest water that you'll find in the lake. And as you go up, the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter. So the fish seeking the cool environment will suspend in the thermocline. The bait will suspend there, and everybody has a party. And if your bait's below the thermocline or too far above the thermocline at different times of the day, you're not going to catch them. Now we're back to patterns and habits, but that, that particular Phenomenon known as a thermocline, it only exists at that time of the year. And that's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today because we're talking about mostly just bank fishing and stuff like that, but it's a good concrete example of how things change by the season and then it's reflected by the habits and patterns. And then the last and the one where most people start is diet. What does this thing primarily eat? Okay, So if we're going to target something like a pompano or a permit, a saltwater fish, and we're out there with shrimp, we could catch some. They'll eat a shrimp. But what we really want is a thing called a sand flea. They love sand fleas. Walleye and perch love leeches. I mean, they'll eat a lot of other things. We used to catch a lot of yellow perch on small, little, itty-bitty, tiny sunfish. But, man, yellow perch love leeches, Smallmouth bass will eat a worm, they'll eat a lot of things, but they love helgramites, and they love, uh, crayfish, specifically crayfish that have molted or soft-shelled. So either our bait or our lure targets the species based on its preferred food, and, and what is the diet that's available to it right now? If there's something that, that is really abundant right now, that fish might key in on that and ignore everything else, because it's like it's surrounded by donuts, and, and, and you put a piece of cheese there. And it doesn't dislike cheese. It's all metaphorical right now, so you understand. It's not that it doesn't like cheese. It just prefers donuts, and there's more donuts than it can eat right now. So you need a donut or something more appealing than a donut to get to it. So that's that's how diet functions. So let's take an actual way that we would target that. So if we look at the seasonality, in late spring, early summer, as the water's really beginning to warm up, whiting, also known as Gulf kingfish, move in toward the Texas shores. And they'll hang out in fairly shallow water, but where they really like to hang out is just to either side of a sandbar. So that's the pattern, that's the habitat, and that's the season. That's where those fish are at that particular time. And they really, they'll follow a pattern of, there's more of them in there when the tide's high than when the tide's low. What is, their, what is their primary thing they like to eat? Small crustaceans, shrimp, and anything that they can find, really. They, they, anything that's, 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 that's basically ocean-based, including little pieces of themselves. And another part of their habit is where do they feed? They feed on the bottom. You can look at a whiting and you see that it's got a mouth that's designed to feed off the bottom. So if we take shrimp or cut bait near high tide, or a few hours before and a few hours after and during slack tide, which is kind of when it's shifting, and we fish the Texas surf, and we fish that just to the other side of the first sandbar, what's called the first gut, and we put that on the bottom, we're going to catch whiting. And, and I mean, you're going to catch whiting. You might catch some other things. You might pick up some hardheads or gaffed up sale catfish or something like that, but you're going to catch a lot of whiting if you do that, because you've matched the habit, the pattern, the season, and the diet. And when you get that, then we can take that to anything. And I won't go into other species because we'll kind of cover it as we go through. So some of my favorite species to target. I love catfish. And I love to fish for both bullhead and channel catfish. And the thing is, it's a weird thing actually. If you get a 10-inch bullhead, you can get more meat off of it than a 12-inch channel cat. They're just a thicker fish. They don't get as big as a channel cat. I actually prefer channel cat as a target species. But there's a lot of small lakes and ponds where I can catch tons of bullheads from 8 to 11 to 12 inches and not catch any channel cats. Or the, the city or whatever in a city pond like throws channel cats in there. There's not enough uh, food to support them. And you catch a, like a 14-inch channel cat that's shaped like a snake. But the bullheads are fat and happy because they'll eat freaking anything. Especially fathead minnows, which are uh, around here. So, let's, let's, let's run the pattern after a bullhead catfish. Um, what is the habitat of a bullhead catfish? They generally like soft bottoms, water deep enough that it's not too bright. They like to be able to burrow in things. They like to go into things. If you find a pond with a big culvert with more than a couple feet of water that stays in that culvert and there's bullheads in it, there's bullheads in that culvert. I promise you. Anything that's like a, a, a cutout or a space, those fish like that. Um, Their pattern is that they pretty much eat ravenously all year round except when it's too cold. Their other pattern is they are really active in the morning in the evening, but they'll pretty much eat all day long, except in hot temperatures they're going to seek cool areas, or they're going to go find a place and burrow in the mud and stay dormant until it cools down a little bit and they're not baking in the heat. They don't like to be too hot. They eat on the bottom, and they'll also eat up to a foot or two off the bottom. They'll come up to take baits. They sense bait, like all catfish do, beyond just sight with, with smell. They actually can follow a central, kind of similar to the way a shark does. They have little barbels to detect things. So if we want to, fly, we want to catch bullhead catfish, we want to find a place where bullhead catfish are. We want to fish primarily in the evenings or the mornings. Or if we're going to fish in the afternoon, we want to do it in the time of year before it gets too hot or when it's begun to cool off a little bit. Or we want to target an area with deeper water, cool, shade, moving water. All of those things will attract bullheads. And we want to put a bait on the bottom or near the bottom. What do we fish with? I'll tell you my my go-to favorite bait for bullhead catfish. Hot dogs. And not ballpark franks and not Joe Spudy brand or generic hot dogs. I don't know why but Oscar Mayer wieners. Not the chicken ones, not the kosher ones, just plain old Oscar Mayer hot dogs. They seem to work the best, and they also work really good for channel cats. Um, generally, the way that I use them, I cut them about a half inch to a little less, like little little hot dog round pieces, you know, like you're cutting them up, throw them in beanies and weenies, and then cut them in half, And maybe even cut them into quarters and make sure you leave a rind on them and run a hook through them. And that with a small split shot on the bottom or with a cork and you figure out how deep the water is and it's just you want to get it to where you're floating either just touching the bottom or within six inches of the bottom. And if there's bullheads there and you put that in there, they'll eat it. They'll eat it and they'll eat it every time. You can catch tons of them. My favorite hook for bullheads is a kale generally like a number four kale hook. A kale hook is somewhere between like a standard J hook and a circle hook. With most hooks, what you do, the fish takes it, you jerk, right? You set that hook. Circle hooks are really popular with catch and release anglers because as soon as that fish has that bait in his mouth and starts moving off, you just gently reel. And as as the fish pulls away, the hook just embeds itself in the corner. A kale sort of does that, but it's not quite as aggressive in its turn as a circle hook, and you give it a little bit of a tug, just a little tug. And the big thing about a kale is it's kind of, for its size, it's kind of long, has a longer shank, and bullheads like to gulp, and same with channel cats, gulp, and swallow that bait down. Okay? And so just that little reel and a little kind of a a pullback jerk, and you're going to have a very high hook-up ratio with bullheads. Other baits that work good for bullheads... Uh, minnows. If you have a lake that's full of fathead minnows or any minnows that can be easily netted, two or three dead minnows. You just hook them right through on on a kale hook on the bottom. They'll tear that up. Earthworms. They like earthworms. Um, Prepared catfish baits and things like that. But I'm telling you, bullheads and and hot dogs, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, Another thing you can do, this is true of any catfish species, is chum. And I'll give you a couple different ways to chum. One is when you go fishing and you take the stuff home to clean it at home because it's easier to do at home where you have proper stuff in the mud on the side of a bank, you take a whole bunch of the, the, the guts and carcasses and put them into some sort of a cloth bag. Or you tie up something around them like a flour sack towel or something like that and tie them up and put that inside a Ziploc bag and throw that in the freezer. The other thing to put in there is put like a couple big weights in there like, you know, two-ounce uh, sandbag bait casting weights to make sure it's going to sink. And when you go fishing next time, grab one of those, take it with you, put it in your cooler so it doesn't stink until you get there, tie a rope around it, and kind of throw it out in the area that you're fishing. And every once in a while, I'll give it a tug, pull it in, throw it back out. As it defrosts, little stinks of that fish, will start, and it will start drawing them in by scent. Another way you can do this is you get a can of dog food, like Alpo, punch a bunch of holes in it with a nail, tie a rope through two of those holes up at the top, make them a little bit bigger, and then throw that in there, and that will bring catfish in. Do the rope thing so you don't be a polluting asshole and you pull that stuff in at the end. You can dump all the fish guts out and clean out your rag and reuse it uh, or just discard it. Uh, but you can leave those guts there for coons and what have you or the other fish to eat. Uh, with your dog food, basically the best thing to do is pull it up and throw it away. Those are two great ways. Another good thing you can chum for catfish with, works really good for channel catfish, are range cubes. Range cubes look like giant rabbit pellets. You feed them to cattle as a protein supplement, and you want 18% protein or higher range cubes, and they'll sink. And just two or three of those in an area, and they'll come in, and and I've actually kept fish catfish, both channels and bullheads, in aquarium tanks. And when you throw those things in there, they go and they munch on it, and they don't really eat it. It attracts them, and they eat for a little while, and then they quit. So they're really attracted to the smell, but they don't really like to eat it. And what's great about that is they come in, they nibble around on it, now they're all keyed up and they're looking for something to eat, and there's your hot dog or your worm or your piece of cut bait or your chicken liver or whatever, and boom, they're going to eat that. Because when you chum fish, you don't want to feed them, you want to attract them, so that all they have to eat is your bait, that way they become very, very active. So those, those are a couple of ways you can chum. There are some prepared chums that you can buy. You make them into little balls. It's like a powder. It stinks to eye heaven. You dump it in the water. It works it works it's like magic catfish chum or something like that they sell at a place i buy stuff out around here called academy it, it does work but again now these fish are actually feeding on it it costs more money and it stinks your hands up i know people use sour grain as chum that really stinks too i'm not a big fan of it the stuff that i've given you especially when it comes to bullheads works really great um channel cats it, 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 this is one where you really have to look more at seasonality I've caught channel cats on lakes where there's a lot of uh, rip raft or just big rocks uh, along a dam breast, and this is usually done from a boat because you're too close to them from shore. And we'll pull a boat where about you know 15, 20 feet anchored, looking at the shore sideways, and you might be fishing two, three feet off the bank with a, And usually those are fairly deep for being that close, and you're using a cork and you're trying to suspend that bait just off the surface. When does that work? When they're spawning. When do they spawn? Depends on where you live. But they're all up in those rocks, making burrows in between them spawning, and you can just tear them up. Uh, another time of year that I fished this same lake, i talk about the thermocline. There was a bridge and there was sh- shadow, right? Because the, the, when the sun was high in the middle of the day, the bridge dropped a shadow. We'd pull up under that bridge and tie off to a pylon and just drop in some catfish chum, the prepared chum, and what we were looking for, everything there was around 18 feet. There's your thermocline, and there were some channels running through at 22 feet. Well, those channels were actually old creek channels. That water's moving through there, and the air temperature and so the water temperature's lower because it's in shade all day long, and those fish would come along that channel. But they were at 18 feet. They weren't at 22 feet at the bottom. So we were fishing 16 to 17 feet down, just dropped over the side, with shad or punch bait for channel cats, and we would catch a limit in an hour. And what we would do is drop a couple softball-sized lumps of that that prepared catfish chum into those areas. But what I did once I started building up my catch from that, as I did exactly what I said, I would get uh, all my guts and corpses from my last thing, I'd put them, in in not in a cloth bag this time, in a Ziploc bag, and when they're frozen, they'll sink. And I have a big chunk of frozen fish, And I just dropped that in the water. Now I'm going to tell you this. In some places, including here in Texas, technically that's illegal because you have, uh, a game fish if you're using like scraps of like, uh, white bass or catfish on your boat processed, uh, without the processed piece. Um, no one ever bothered me. Just, you know, use your head where you're at. But channel cats and bullhead cats are a little bit different. But I'm going to tell you something about channel cats a lot of people don't know. You know that magic formula of using Oscar Mayer wieners for bullheads? Yeah, channel cats love them too. They absolutely love them, especially your smaller channel cats. When I say smaller, I'm talking fish from, you know, basic eating size 12, 14 inches up to about 24 inches. They just devour them. The, the key with hot dogs is if you put one in the water, you'll see this oil coming off of it, and I think that's what really attracts them. And you'll get about 15 minutes from a piece of hot dog with that oil emanating from it where it'll kind of give up the ghost and it, it's not real attractive to them anymore. So if you if you don't get a fish within 15 minutes, change the bait out and always just plunk the the, the bait you've taken off because it can't hurt out in the area you're fishing. It's chum. Um, if you're not getting bites in 15 to 30 minutes with bullheads or channel catch, you're in the wrong area. Or if you've patterned them, maybe they're just not there yet. Maybe it's worth waiting it out a little bit. But those are some things to think about targeting those species. And I really love these guys. Um, freshwater drum is another fish I like to catch and eat. And a lot of people think it's a trash fish. And these are people who have never eaten one. Um, they think it 's like a cart because it 's a bottom feeder, but what do drum eat Well drum eat mostly crustaceans uh, and and shellfish and things like that and minnows and and what have you uh, They are not eating mud. no fish eats mud fish eat stuff out of the mud, but th- no fish eats mud this whole well it lives on mud no it doesn 't you can 't live on mud. Uh, they also eat uh, plankton, zoo, and, 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 uh, and, and plant, pr- plankton both, especially when they're smaller. But the drum have a very um, white, somewhat firm, flaky flesh. They're one of the best-eating freshwater fish I've ever eaten. Um, they remind me more of something like uh, a, a saltwater fish in their firmness. Uh, they they clean very easily. They don't have like a billion bones that you got to get through. And I don't catch a lot of them, uh, but when I do catch a nice sized one, I keep them. I usually catch these in bigger lakes, and I usually catch them in areas that are kind of rocky. And it's always fishing on the bottom, usually targeting catfish. But the number one bait that I've caught them on are night crawlers. I don't know what it is. I know that they can't possibly find a lot of night crawlers. But I've been to a lot of places. You have a bait land on the bottom with night crawlers, and boy, you'll pick up drum after drum after drum after drum. Uh, I've caught them on minnows. I've caught them on, uh, on crayfish. I've caught them on a lot of things. And crayfish would be a preferred uh, dietary item for them, but the number one thing I've consistently caught them on is worms. There's um, a Boy Scout camp that I used to to chaperone for my my son at on the Brazos River. And when I didn't have to be chaperoning and I was out there, I'd have my rod and I'd be down there fishing in the Brazos. And I caught probably two to one over everything else I caught out of the Brazos down there, uh, drum. And all I ever really fished with down there was night crawlers. And fish just fish on the bottom. And a river on the bottom is a little different than a lake because you got a uniform depth and sometimes they're not that deep. Uh, there are not a lot of suspended fish a lot of times. And fish are moving up and down and through a river. So I'd find a little eddy where fish would get a break moving up and down through there. And I caught bass, I caught catfish, I caught, but I caught a lot of drum. Uh, even caught some carp down there, caught a gar or two. But lots of drum, night crawlers, rocky areas on the bottom. And again, great tasting fish. Another fish I like to target, and this is one that most of the time, if you're going to be able to catch them consistently throughout the year, you do need a boat, and that's uh, sand bass. Now, sand bass have a spawning pattern okay, in a particular season where they like to swim upstream like little salmon, and then they like to find a gravelly area to spawn in. So now we know season, we know habit, we know pattern. So now we need diet. Sand bass primarily eat small fish. They're a predatory wolf pack of fish. They like shad and glass minnows. So if we have either that as bait or we have a lure that emulates that, then we can target white bass in that spawning run. Here's the issue. That only happens for a few weeks every year. And not every lake that has lots of sand bass and it has the kind of stream or creek feeding it that they're going to swim up. So we have to understand, well, what, what changes in that season about their habit and pattern? Well, what are they attracted to? Gravel. Well, in these larger reservoirs, where white bass like to, uh, to hang out, where they can find gravel, is generally you find deep water and humps that come up to that magic number again of about 16 to 20 feet. 18 being optimum. Most of the time in these lakes around here in the south anyway, those humps if they're actual humps, they're not structure. they're not um, a brush pile. They're actually the bottom. Those are rocky. Those are rocky and gravelly. So that's the only rocky, gravelly place that they can find. So what do those fish do? They move up onto those rock piles, and they spawn down there in 16, 18 feet of water. And if we bounce a slab, like a one-ounce slab that looks like a dying bait fish, on those uh, humps during that time of year, we're going to catch sandbass. Lots of them. For those of us who don't know, we also call these white bass. They look like a small striper. And legal size is about 10 inches here in Texas. Uh, A big one is 16 inches. You catch a lot of them in the 12 to 14 inch range, one and a half, two pounds. We catch doubles on them. They're a great fish to target. They're a great fish to eat. and The limit on them is 25. I don't know what they are where you are, but here a limit is 25 a day. And no one will look at you sideways if you went out there and took a limit any day you wanted, like you're hurting the population or anything. Uh, these fish don't live a long time. I think their average lifespan is five years. They grow really fast. Um, a fish in its second year will be, be a legal fish. Sometimes we've actually caught fish you can tell they're young of year fish because it's the end of the season and a fish from the previous year would be larger and they're already 10 inches or, or damn close to it. And they were born in March and now we're talking about, you know, like November. They live on, again, shad, and glass minnows. So we need to pattern that. So I gave you another example of patterning that. When they're not on those humps all day long spawning, they travel throughout their their environment. And one of the places you'll find them on really windy days, the shad will get blown up against rocky points, and they'll go in there and feed on those shad. In the time of year where it gets hot and that thermocline forms, they'll suspend right in the thermocline around structure. And if you can find an area like that, sometimes you can slab them, but you can also use a technique called hell pet. Or you can use what's called a dipsy diver. And what we want is we want something that will let us troll a boat and put a bait down at 18 feet. And there's a thing called a hellbender. And uh, basically you take the hooks off. It's a big crankbait. And you put the little eye hooks that hold the hooks on back in with Loctite, or actually epoxy. You put a leader off the back, and you put a thing called a pet spoon in the back. You tow that about two miles an hour behind your boat through an area where you suspect these fish are. It'll run right at 18 feet, and you'll start hitting sand bass, picking them up on each pass. So you can have one guy driving a boat. You can have rods out both sides, two guys fishing. You make a pass. You catch two fish. By the time the guy turns around, makes an S turn to come back around for another pass, those fish are in the box. The rods are back down. And I mean, we've literally done that where we fill the box, and the guy comes off running the boat for a while. We put seventy-five fish in a box in an hour because we're we're following that habit pattern season diet. We know where the fish is, what time of year it is, how it behaves, what season that we're in, and what the fish eats, and we're just lining those up. That's probably the most sophisticated one that I'll give you today. And the, the like I said, the one you will need um, a boat to really be able to target. All year long, or at least through the majority of the year. However, if you're fishing larger lakes from a pier or shore, it's very important if you want to make sure you can take targets of opportunity. Sometimes you'll see sand bass moving close to shore, and the water will look like it's boiling. That's because they're running shad. If they're doing that, and you have a rod sitting by with something heavy that you can get out to them with that's kind of a topwater bait that, that looks like a struggling bait fish... For as long as they're there, every cast you'll catch one. I'm I'm dead serious on that. And I use slabs, which are considered a deep water bait, as a top water bait with a heavy action, medium heavy action bait cast rod. You can zing that thing out there about 100 yards, and you real fast and hold it up high and slap it across the surface. And I've caught a lot of sand bass like that. We'll be fishing sometimes, and we're doing what we are talking about earlier. We're bouncing baits off the bottom, catching sand bass, and all of a sudden a school pops up. And instead of switching rods out, we just zing that slab out over there and keep it high. So there's, there's a lot of ways you can target them and knowing their behavior, when you see it, you know what that is. You get a bait out there, you keep it high, you catch fish. Uh, next. Probably my favorite fish to catch through my whole life. And part of it is when I was a little kid and I didn't know anything, and I I, I tied a hook on with two overhand knots because that's all I knew to do. And I fished with green, green giant corn nuggets at this little pond uh, at the apartment complex that I was in. I'm talking, I was like seven years old, six years old, fishing at this little pond. I I could always catch some. And that was, you know, bluegill, sunfish, perch, whatever you want to call them, sunnies, right? In, In Pennsylvania, they're sunnies. In Florida, they're brim. In Texas, they're perch. And and boy, I posted a video where I called one a perch on YouTube and I had so many assholes. That's not a perch. You're so stupid. There's white perch and yellow Yes, I know, I know, but this is regional. It's what people refer to them as. They just refer to them in this part of the country as perch, various little sunfish. And probably the the king of them and in, in being able to find them and getting some size on them where they're worth catching are bluegill. Uh, but there's also things like red ear sunfish, red belly sunfish, warm mouth bass, all of these little, these, you know, green sunfish. There's some of these stock ponds. There's hybrid, uh, sunfish where they cross like, I think bluegill and green sunfish. And, uh, they're, they're all great. The biggest problem generally is catching them in large enough size to make them worth filleting and keeping. And kind of the, 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 the way that I look at getting that done often is find where you're catching lots of them and little ones and just start working your bait a little further and further out. And the bigger fish that are less afraid of being eaten by a bass or something like that will often be just beyond them. Sometimes, even though bluegill tend to feed on the surface and is suspended fish, they will hold near the bottom. The larger fish will. And a... Kind of almost like a saltwater rig where you have like a a quarter ounce or a half ounce bait casting sinker at the end of your line and you have a, a, a hook off to the side about eighteen inches above the weight that lets you hold the line as a tight line and it, and it will so the weight's laying on the bottom, but your bait will be sitting you know oh uh, eight inches to six inches off the bottom that puts it more in that fish's area and you're on a tight line so you can feel exactly when they pick them up. That's a good way to target larger bluegills. Another way, and this works for other fish species as well, to suspend a bait like a worm, uh, a little bit off the bottom, put your split shot normal like, you know, let's say six to eight inches above your hook. Take a worm and put that on, take a hypodermic needle and blow a little air into the worm and then the or- and sit in the water, make sure it floats, that worm will float. We can also do that with bluegill. We don't generally have to cast far. If they are feeding on the surface, take a worm or a half worm, put it on a small hook, pump it up with that hypodermic needle, and throw it out there. It'll float on the surface. And a lot of times your larger bluegills will come up and hit that. Your smaller little ones you could mail for a postage stamp won't. And there's just a lot of other ways to, to, to do that. If you find weed lines, generally like to hang out just at the edge of that weed line. That can make it difficult from shore, but if you figure out how to do it, you can find them. Uh, but these are fish that, you, you know, ideally, if you can find a, a pond, not a lake, but a pond, where there's ducks and people feed bread to ducks, and the areas that people feed those ducks, you'll find bluegill. And they're getting supplemental feed from all that bread, and that'll put some more size on them. And all that bread is also attracting all types of little things that bluegill eat, what do bluegill eat? Bluegill are little bass with little mouths. So they're like a bass, except they can't fit big stuff in their mouth. They eat minnows. They eat aquatic insects. They eat anything that they can get their hands on, but they're carnivores. They don't generally feed that much anyway on plant matter. However, they like corn. They like bread. My my, my number one bait as a kid, once I figured it out to catch bluegills in Florida, was a bread ball. You use like a number 10 hook, and you take a piece of bread, not the crust, from the center, and you make a tightly packed little ball. White bread is best. Don't ask me why. That's what they like. You put that, that little ball you know, on that hook so that you can just feel the point of the hook sticking through, touching you in the finger. And if you can get the bait where it needs to go without a weight, no weight, throw it out there and let it sink, and they hit it on the fall. If you're not doing well with that, switch to something like a split shot, a small float, put the bait a little deeper, suspend it for a while. That's in lakes, though. They like structure. They like to go under piers. They like to be next to uh, the, the, uh, the supports that hold the piers up. They like to go under boat docks. They like rocks. They like weed lines. But they should be the easiest fish to find. And often the best way to catch bluegill in a pond is, is is make sure the sun's right so that you can see well and make sure you're not casting a shadow on the pond and walk the edge of the pond and look and you'll just see them you spot them and then you know that area is a place to target them in uh, and then the last one, I don't eat these. And I don't know if they would be good or not. I never have. And I, frankly, I've never caught one in Texas. But I, I grew up catching the hell out of them in Florida. It's called a bowfin, also known as a mudfish. Again, no fish eats mud. Uh, these are like a prehistoric dinosaur fish I won't go deep into today. But they get very large. They have big teeth. They have, They almost look like a snakehead. They're like the North American snakehead, but they don't cause the problems that snakeheads do. Number one bait that I always caught them on. In Florida, we had these big, giant, golden shiners. And you could catch those with the little bread ball technique I gave you for bluegills. And you'd cast just as far out as about as you could without a weight with a light action rod and let that fall just past where the bluegills had hit these big. Sh- and I mean, these were big. Especially when I say shiner, people think of like minnows. These things were 10, 12, 14 inch. They looked like a grass carp almost. And if you put Golden Shiner uh, in, in uh, Google and hit images, you'll see what I'm talking about. And I would take those and I would fillet them, so a big strip. And then use like a large hook, like a like a number two or even a two-aught uh, bait holder hook, hooked once through and back through the other. And we would just cast out to areas where you'd see activity with those and let that sit on the bottom. And they would, they're a predator, but man, they would just kill those fillets of Golden Shiner. And I've caught those from, you know, a foot long, a foot and a half long, up to like 30, 34 inches big, huge, hard-fighting fish, and they're just fun. If you find them in the area, try cut bait on them. I've seen that work better than lures and and, and, and live minnows and everything else. For some reason, a fillet of a of soft-fleshed fish like a shiner, they just really seem to like that. And they like it better than a small one whole. The one that's cut like that, I don't know if it's a scent thing or whatever, but boy, they used to hammer the crap out of it. Moving on to Saltwater. Um, I'm going to cover these two together, gaff top and hardhead catfish. These are considered the ultimate trash fish by almost everybody out there that fishes saltwater, especially bays and surf. Uh, they're pretty good at stealing shrimp. Uh, of course, how do you know that's what stole your shrimp? How do you know it wasn't a small whiting? You don't, but you finally catch a hardhead and it's his fault. Um, I will say this about them. They're extremely slimy, even compared to freshwater catfish. Uh, they, they slime up your line. They slime up your hands. If you put them straight into a cooler, they slime up your cooler. That means if they're going in a cooler, they should go in a bag, straight on the ice, not on the ice straight because you can have a slimy, nasty cooler. But as far as taste, they taste great. They are a lot like targeting whiting. Uh, so I'll kinda, I've already kind of covered whiting, so I'm going to throw whiting into this. When I'm looking to catch whiting and, and, and ocean catfish and sea catfish and surf fishing, what I'm looking for again is to get into what's called the guts. And I don't mean guts like fish guts. They call them guts. When you go out to the beach and you walk out, it starts to get deep and then all of a sudden it starts to get less deep and you end up, you know, maybe really far out, but you're up to your knees or your ankles even and you're standing on a sandbar. And then, so the first gut, if it, if it does get deep before the surf sandbar would be between shore and the first sandbar. And then if you go out further, you might even get over your head, but a lot of times, not always, but when you have multiple sandbars set up in the right pattern, you go far enough, you can be way the hell out, all of a sudden you're up to your waist again, or even your knees again, really far out. And you have two sandbars, and that area between them would be the second gut. And then past that last sandbar would be the third gut. And a lot of your sporting fish and all, that people think of as, as more desirable, you want to get out into that third gut. But your, your whiting and your hardheads, which is why a lot of those those sporting fish end up coming in eventually for, for feeding, in that second gut or even the first gut is where you want to be. You want to bait on the bottom. I usually start out with shrimp because I can buy shrimp at the grocery store and use it for bait, and it will cost me less in the end than buying shrimp at the bait shop and getting crappy shrimp. You want to use wild-caught shrimp, cut them into small pieces, Put them onto a bait holder hook. Depending on the size of the fish you're catching, anything from like a, a number eight all the way up to like a two-aught or even bigger, depending on what's in the surf that day. Wait about 18 inches behind the, the hook and fish the bottom in the guts. Cast it out. Let it set for a while. Reel it in. Let it set for a while. Reel it in a little more. Let it set for a while. Keep trying different areas until you, you, you hone in on them. And you can usually catch one or the other or both in abundance. What I'm looking for with the gaff tops and the hardheads are generally fish about 12 inches long and bigger. Those smaller ones can be prepared. And I'm going to give you a way to do catfish I just learned. And I don't know if it works with ocean cats, but I know it works with bullheads. It's really cool. And then you you, you if you're fishing on the bottom in that area, you're going to really be in the right place for gaff top, hardhead, and whiting. Now, seasonality comes into play here. There's a fish called a sand trout, not a sea trout. Sand trout are less targeted by anglers than, than speckled trout or sea trout. Uh, these are a member of the drum family. They kind of look like uh, half trout and half redfish, I guess, sort of. Um, they'll have four teeth, two on the top, two on the bottom, like little fangs, like little dog fangs. Uh, they're kind of a pinkish color, and to catch them, you do exactly what I just said, but here's the next piece. When I take shrimp and I start catching fish on them, I catch some small whiting. I cut my small whiting up into cut bait or I catch some other random fish we won't talk about today. I cut those up as cut bait and I use that. It stays on a lot better than shrimp. Shrimp is really easy to steal. Sand trout love, I mean fanatically love cut whiting. They just love it. There was a time when I worked for uh, MCI. Uh, we ended up on a job and we had no work. The, the Stuff wasn't there. It was going to be there in four days. Rather than have us leave and pay us to drive around, they said, we'll just pay you eight hours a day plus your per diem and your hotel. Just stay there. Okay. So we had no stuff with us. We were going to Corpus, uh, Christy, and you would think we would take fishing gear. Well, we were going to be working like 14-hour days to bust this thing out and then go to another job. So we weren't going to have any time to fish. Nobody really thought about it. We went down to Walmart. We bought like $30 rod and reels each. And uh, went out to the pier at night, and we fished every night. And just in, we were there. We ended up in there in November. It's a time of the sand trout. We're moving through. We were giving away most of our fish because we're in a hotel and we're far from home. We weren't really prepared. But there was one night, two of the big ass uh, white like igloo coolers, like the seventy-five gallon ones. This guy had two of them, and between me and these two other guys, we filled up both of his coolers for him. Here you go, man. Here you go, man. And these were nice fish. Uh, so sand trout, that's another fish that you can pretty much target the same way, on the bottom, uh, in an area where they're running, cut bait. Jack Crevel Jack, Jack crevel generally speaking, I catch on lures like, like spinners or spoons or live bait, like thread-thin chat or something you catch with a, with a cast net. But I've caught them also fishing the bottom for whiting and other things like that. And that's what I love about the ocean. You never know what you're going to pick up. Most people toss Jack Crevel away. Um, if you fillet a Jack Crevel and there's this big red line and you cut that red line out, it kind of sort of tastes like halfway to tuna, like good tuna, like blackfin but not quite all the way there, and it's a good-eating fish. I don't know why people throw them away. I won't go deep into them today for the, for the sake of, of the length of the show, but let's just say that if you check into them, you'll probably find that if you can get access to shore fishing anywhere in the, from Texas over to Florida, way up past the Carolinas, there's probably potential to pick up Jack Cravel in the surf, and, and they're a really great fish. Uh, we also catch croaker. I won't get into how because it's pretty much the same as whiting, but it's based on when they're moving and how big they are. It's another fish people throw back or use little ones for bait. Um, I treat them like sand trout and whiting when it comes to cooking them, which I'll talk about in a second. And another fish that I really like to pick up in the surf that a lot of people kind of – not as bad, but a lot of people kind of look down on are bluefish because they're oily. And bluefish are another great fish. I have never caught a bluefish in Texas. My understanding is that you can catch bluefish in Texas. I know a lot of people do catch them in boats off the reefs and stuff like that, but my understanding is you can catch them in the surf and in the bays in Texas during certain times of the year. I never had, and I've never worked that hard for it. In Florida, there were times a year where that seasonality would come, and my grandfather was the uh, head of security for Jacksonville University so we could fish the the boat piers at Jacksonville University right on the St. John's, and we would catch 15, 20 bluefish in about 15 minutes uh, each. And then we wouldn't see another one for the rest of the day. It would be whenever a, a group of them would come through. And uh, they, were, they were great, hard-fighting, wonderful fish. And mostly we caught them on cut bait, shrimp, and things like that. Um, and then in the surf in, in Jacksonville, fishing the surf there as a kid, whenever they were around, boy, you could just, once they were there, you, almost every cast you'd be picking up a bluefish. So, you know, part of this is figuring out what's available, where you are, and when they are. But those are all fish that I've enjoyed fishing for, in various ways that a lot of people just kind of don't really don't really consider worthy of pursuit. And I, I find that to be uh, actually great because that means there's less people in my way when I'm going after them. Okay, let's talk about cooking these guys up for a little while and give you some different ideas. And I want you to understand that a lot of the stuff I'm going to say is applicable to any fish. But I want to start off with... Uh, pan-fried shucked catfish is what i'm calling it um but this really pertains i know definitely to bullheads and i have never cleaned a catfish the way that i'm about to explain you i just learned this in a youtube video and i'll put the youtube video in the show notes for you so you can see this today but i have taken little bullheads and basically cut their head off and gutted them and skinned them before i cut their head off by uh, cutting the skin around the head and grabbing with some pliers and yanking it off and I've seen people do this all kinds of ways and make it so complicated, and pretty much it, it it comes off pretty easy if you don't make it hard. You don't need to be nailing things to a tree or whatever. Um, but what you're ending up with then is the bones are still in the fish, you got the fins off, tail's still on, skinless little catfish. And I'll give you the way that he cleans them. And again, I've never done this, but man, it worked so well for him and with so fast it has me excited about bullheads more than before so what you do <clears throat> a bullhead right above its tail has a little tab that sticks out rearward and you put your knife on there under there pointing forward and you slice just the skin off the back like a little bit into the flesh so you got like kind of a flat wide strip all the way up until you hit that that top Fin on the bullhead that could stab you in the hand if you're not careful at how you pick it up. When you get there, you cut into the bone and you 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 cut down into the bone a little bit, and then you grab the head in the back of the fish and you break that backbone so that the backbone sticks up. You take a pair of pliers, you grab the backbone, tail, you know, the piece that's toward the tail. You hold the head in the other hand and you just pull, and it just peels like a banana. And you end up with this little fish, all the guts come out of it, except maybe like the swim bladder or the liver or whatever. You reach in there and thumb that out and rinse it off. And it takes literally 15 seconds of fish to do this. I've also filleted bluegills, or not bluegills, um, bullheads, but they're small catfish. And it's, it's a lot of, it takes a lot of time relative to what you get out of it, I would say. And there's something for these smaller fish to go ahead and cooking them, hold the bones in them. They taste better. But you can fillet Again, you don't need to be nailing fish to a tree or whatever. You take your like any fish. You can look up how to fillet a fish. You, you take your fillet off. You don't cut it all the way past until you flip it over and you skin it. And, and if you have rib bones in the way, you cut the rib bones off. And, and so you can do them that way. And you can cook them the way I'm about to give you, either filleted or whole. But this whole way looks fast, easy, and it looks really good. And again, I've cooked whole, skinned catfish before this way, smaller fish, and this is it's so simple. What we're gonna do is we're gonna put lemon pepper salt, and paprika into some sort of a container. We're going to mix it so it's like a rub so it's not uneven in how we're coating it. So again, paprika, lemon, pepper, and salt. Equal amounts. We're going to lay our fish down. We're going to pat them dry. We're going to sprinkle both sides of them with this stuff. And we're going to set them aside. We're going to give them at least 10 minutes, more like 20 is better, to let it kind of stick to them and get kind of sticky so it'll stay on there for you. And then we're going to take a skillet We're going to put butter in it. That's the whole magic sauce, just butter. We're going to bring that butter up to temperature where we can cook that fish gently. We don't want to bring it to the point where the butter starts to get brown on us. If it gets a little bit brown by the end, that's fine, but we just want to bring it up to the butter is melted at a nice temperature. We drop our fish in. They're small fish. We don't need to cook them very long, probably about five minutes each side until the flesh comes easily from the bone. We're We're going to take them off, and we're going to eat them. You're going to pull them off the bone. Bullhead catfish don't have a lot of little odd bones and stuff like that in them. You take your fork and go in at that kind of lateral line, it just pulls right off. And all of this concept about mushy and muddy, it just goes right out the window. Firm, white, delicious flesh. And I, I really think that especially your smaller hardhead and gaff top sail catfish from the ocean would be able to be clean this way, and maybe smaller channel cats. I, 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 I kind of looking at the technique. It seems like the bigger the fish gets, the little it might become more and more difficult to a point where it's not productive, or just go ahead and fillet the damn thing. But I'm going to try it with other other fish. On that note, uh, just filleted gaff top or hardhead catfish cooked this way is phenomenal, and probably the best tasting catfish, salt or fresh water, I have ever eaten is hardhead. And people say, well, gaff tops are okay, but hardheads... Shut up, you didn't eat one. You've never eaten one. You don't know. Or you you overcooked it and murdered it. I, or you, you don't know what you're doing with, with cooking because there's no possible way you could eat a hardhead catfish, a sea cat, whether it's caught in a bay or, or the surf, and tell me it's mushy. Because it's one of the firmest catfish fleshes I've ever eaten in my life. Uh, one trip, Dorothy and I took to Sanibel Island, I did really good multi-species-wise. Uh, in a single day... For the grill, I had a pompano, I had a Spanish mackerel, I had a, a, a speck trout, and I had a, uh, a a relatively small hardhead cat. I filleted them all, so we had four, you know, kind of small fillets each, with no idea of wh- which one was which. And these were just cut, salt and pepper, thrown on the grill, with a little foil so they didn't fall through, right? With no idea which one was which. Dorothy preferred the hardhead catfish. To every other fish there, number two was the pompano, um, and I don't remember how the other ones worked. But it's the pompano she liked next. Uh, it, it was probably the mackerel next, and actually the one that everybody wants, the speck trout last, because they're not quite as firm of flesh, and they're not quite as good a fish as far as I'm concerned, taste wise. But that salt, lemon, pepper, and paprika on any. Fish that you can pan fry is really good. And of course, you can bread it and pan fry it too. Um, next one, grilled channel catfish steaks. Usually, I fillet channel catfish. It's generally what I do with them um, because it's just—it's really easy. It's fast. Again, a- anybody that starts nailing a catfish to a tree, uh, I guess unless you have like like a 80-pound like flathead or something like that. Uh, and you're skinning it like a deer, maybe I understand, but these these smaller fish you can hold in one hand. If you're nailing it to something, you're nuts. Um, but you just fillet them. They get a little bit bigger. I'm talking like over 20 inches, 24 inches, 26 inches in that range. They get to be a pretty meaty fish, and it's a really big fillet, and it's, it, it's kind of a lot of waste, it seems like to me. So when I'm going to do this, I don't even skin them. What I do is, I take the back of the knife and I scrape the majority of the slime off of them, just to make them a little more pleasant to work with. And I clean up my knife. And then I cut their head off. And usually, a bigger channel cat like that, it can be kind of hard to get through the head. So a lot of times, I'll have like a small hacksaw or something there to get through that bone. Just cut the head off. I'll take a pair of diagonal cutting pliers and I'll cut the four, the, the three. I'm sorry, the three spike fins off, just so they're out of the way. And then I'll just cut about an inch thick, like little, like if you think of like shark steak or tuna steak or something like that, with the bone in, just straight through, boom, 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 until you get down to like where the tail gets kind of small, and I'll fillet that off and skin that, and then you've got two small fillets you put aside. The rest are either round or a salmon steak is the way I'm describing this, right? And it's got the skin on it. The skin doesn't matter. you got all that flesh, the, the surface of the flesh you're looking at head-on, and a little layer of skin around it. It's not worth skinning. And then you take that and you use some salt, pepper, maybe a little bit of garlic, or you could do the, the lemon, pepper, paprika, salt thing that I gave you, whatever seasoning you want, and you put that right on the grill like a steak. Medium-high heat. It won't fall through the grill. And if you keep your grill seasoned, it won't stick to the grill. And catfish has a lot of fat in it. The fat's kind of like a white grease. And as it cooks, it'll begin to render the fat out. The fat will fall down. This is really good on charcoal. Fall down into the coals and you'll get little sparks of flame coming up and start to kiss it and it'll sear it like to like a brown sear. You flip it and, 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 and then that's, I mean, once it's cooked through, you're done. And you've got that bone kind of like, like a salmon, like a, like a full cut salmon steak. The, the meat comes right off. And that little piece of skin, you just grab it, pull it off, and feed it to the dog or the cat. And that's just a fantastic way to do larger catfish. So I wanted to give you that one today. Then there's one we just call white bass on the half shell. Um, we used to catch a lot of white bass. So we get kind of creative with ways to uh, to process them. You can do this with uh, bluegill. You can do this with any fish um, that would be like a scale fish, like so not a catfish. And you don't scale. When you're doing this, because there's no need to, unless you want to eat the, if you want to eat the skin, then you would scale the fish before you would fillet it. You just do a straight fillet without taking the skin off, cut the ribs out, and then you take that, you put it skin side down on the grill, and you use a little salt, pepper, and lemon juice, and uh, maybe a little tarragon, or a little, depending on what you like, or thyme. I usually use a little thyme and basil. And, and lemon juice and a little olive oil. And cook it. And I put a little olive oil on the skin to help make sure it doesn't stick. Put the skin side down and then, you know, drizzle the top in that. And just as it's finishing, you put a little dollop of butter on it, take it off the grill, and the skin kind of crisps up and it kind of curls and it holds like a little bowl. And the residual heat kind of melts that butter into it. And then you just eat it out of the, out of the skin, you know, with your fork. If you like fish skin, and I kind of do, I just don't like to scale white bass. It's kind of a pain in the ass. You scale that fish, cook it the same way, crisp that skin up. Don't ever turn it flesh side down. Just cook it on the skin side. So just thinner fillets you can do that with. You might even close the grill a little bit just to get it to cook through and just eat the skin. The skin will get nice and crispy and really good. Uh, this is a really good way to do bluegill fillets. So you, you fillet a bluegill. Or you scale a bluegill, you fillet them, and you just throw them skin side down. And, you know, I eat you know, lemon and, and salt and pepper. And all. The truth is these little fish have a lot of flavor going on for themselves. You can pretty much just take that fillet, throw it on the grill skin side down, cook it and eat it, and not do anything to it, and it'll be fine. But salt and pepper, at least, are always kind of a good thing to do there. Uh, and again, any fish that you would scale... Uh, or not scale, Any scale fish can be cooked this way, scale off if you want to eat the skin scale on if you just want to cook it, and it works out really good leaving the scales on if you're going to leave the skin behind, because it, it really gives you kind of a, a good base to cook your fish in, alright, I said I would give you a secret for um, scaling fish fast, most people when they scale small panfish like bluegill, use a spoon, it is a great tool And basically you hold the fish and you go up against the scales with the spoon and it just takes the scales off. But it does take, you know, probably close to a minute per fish. Uh, And if you're going to do the head off, split the belly thing and pan fry them whole, which is a great way to do bluegills, uh, it takes about mm, 20 seconds to cut the head off a bluegill and pull the guts out. So it takes longer to scale it than to clean it. So I don't, I've never tried this, but I remember a real long time ago, I used to watch a show in Jacksonville, Florida when I was a little kid. The only thing we had were the three broadcast stations and the two UHF stations and, um, PBS, right? And this show used to come on PBS and it was called Out the Door. And the guy, the guy that that answered the phone when you called into the show that sat there looked like a cleaned up, little bit cleaned up version of Grizzly Adams. I don't remember what his name was. It was Mark something Like, this is Mark so and you're all, you, this, without the door, and you're on the air, right? And he'd take your questions and stuff. And he would usually the show would be um, about half people calling in and asking questions and fish reports and stuff like that. And the other half was, we went here and caught some trout, or we went here and we caught some, you know, bluegills or whatever. And they had one episode. I remember this very, very clearly. They were out fishing in a boat, and they were catching bluegill. And they got on, like, a spawning bed where you're catching, like, hand-sized bluegill. And they, they they caught a ton of them. And they had one of those metal fish baskets. And what they did, they put all of their bluegill in that fish basket, and they towed the fish basket behind the boat till they got back to the dock. And the fish were dead by the time they got to the dock, but they were still fresh, and they were free of scales. I think I remember that right. I'm not 100% sure if that really works. I've never done it. Uh, I've never actually caught a ton of bluegill while boat fishing, you know, a half a dozen or so. And I, I don't have one of those wire fish baskets. So I've never done it. But when I was putting this show together, I kind of had one of those flashbacks where you remember that. Well, I looked it up to try to find anybody talking about it. And I, I'm not really sure what Google food to use to search for that. Uh, but I found this other product. It's called The Rocket automatic fish scaler and it's basically a wire fish basket but it's not collapsible it has a uh, milk jug basically like a gallon milk or like a uh, w- w- like a bleach jug that hangs off the bottom uh, bottom of it on a rope with a with a, a spinner on it like a dog clip with a, a spinner on it so that it won't twist up and it looks like a fish basket except it's kind of shaped like a rocket with a point that goes toward the boat and it's got a series of fins on it, and when you tow it, it spins. It's designed to spin, and it scales your fish for you. The fact that I was able to find that product leads me to believe it's probably just an improvement on some old fisherman's technique of towing fish in a fish basket. If you've ever done it, I would like to hear from you today. Like, how fast do you go to do it, right? How long do you leave it out there? Uh, what are some things that can go wrong? Uh, do you use some sort of a buoyancy, like is on this product? I'll put this Rocket Automatic Fish Scaler in the show notes today so you all can take a look at it. But anybody that's done that with a bunch of, you know, crappie or bluegills or anything, and you've skinned or scaled your fish by towing them in a fish basket, um, if you can verify that that actually works, because with my Google Foo, I could find, you know, what are you, scaling fish with a wire fish basket i think is what i put in and that's where i found this and i didn't look that deep because i needed to get started on the show um but i'd like to confirm or deny that but i just remember that guy with his beard saying and this is the easiest way in the world to you know scale up all your bluegills and uh so i'd like to know about that one from y'all the next one i have for you we I i call it yellow yellow bass chowder and uh even though we didn't really talk about yellow bass today. Yellow bass are like the the, the little cousin of the white bass. They have the, they're they a little striped-looking fish. Um, they they look like a white bass, but they have a yellow tinge to them, and they don't get anywhere near as big. And sometimes certain likes, when you're out white bass fishing, if, if a school of those things move in, you, you, even if there's white bass there, you never catch any. You just catch these little yellow guys left and right. And they'll be 7, 8 inches, and when you're lucky, 9 inches. Really lucky at 9 inches. Lots of them. And they're jerks. I mean, they're just aggressive because I guess they have to be, but I've, you know, fished with a slab that's like an inch and a half long and, and caught a three inch yellow bass. I mean, that's, they'll, they'll hit anything. They just, they'll go for it. And, uh, so we needed to figure out something to do with them. And my buddy Hal, who's passed away quite a few years now, came up with a yellow bass chowder recipe. And even though I've completely gone off the reservation from his recipe, I still call this fish chowder. I make yellow bass chowder kind of in his memory. And basically, to make this, the, the, you can make your own fish stock, but the easiest way that you can make it, and, and I'm not going to give you specific amounts, because I just kind of do it all by eye, like I do a lot of things, but you, you make up some fish stock using better than bullion fish base. That's just the fast way. And you take a bunch of little fillets of any kind of a, a good flaky white fish, white bass, yellow bass, bluegills, uh, you can do this with whiting, you can do this with anything. Um you cut it up into about bite-sized pieces, and you get your your stock rolling, and you drop your fish in, and then you drop in some corn, uh, like a like a like a, you know a, a golden sweet corn, and uh, some diced potatoes, finely diced potatoes. In fact, put the potatoes in first, and cook them till they just start to get soft. That way you can drop the fish and the corn in. You just kind of poach that, and then finally slice some jalapeno. And cilantro, don't put it in. And you should have enough salt in there because of the fish stock base. Ladle that into a bowl, and then garnish it with the thinly sliced jalapeno or Fresno peppers and cilantro, and stir that in. You want to put a little bit more into it. Throw some some when you go to make your fish stock. Throw a handful of crack uh, of peppercorn in there. You know your black pepper. Uh, either just cracked or just whole peppercorn and kind of simmer it for a while with that and with your potatoes before the rest of the stuff goes in. And just play with that as like a base. You can add anything to it. Um, there, there's just nowhere you can't go. You can bring the heat up, you can bring the heat down, but the cilantro and the fish stock and without, you don't want to cook the cilantro. You know, you chop it and you, you put it in, you kind of stir it in so just the heat poaches it through and if you, if you don't like the heat of the jalapenos, thinly slice the jalapenos, um it first and put them in for like the last minute of cooking your chowder and cook them out a little bit and they won't be as hot. But but you want to make sure with with the peppers, you don't want them to get to that pale green. You want them to be that bright green. And again, you can do that. That's kind of like I took Hal's, which was more like uh, cream in it and, and more like a, a take on uh, New England clam chowder. And I took it to the, the it's not even his recipe anymore, right? It just, yeah, you do things for people you remember, right? Hal Dodd's Yellow, yellow Bass by Jack Spearco. And uh, more like a Thai, you know, like a Thai cuisine there. And it's it's so simple. It's, it's literally a few minutes to make. You get your water boiling, you dissolve your better than bullion base in it. you throw your, your cube potatoes in there. You, you, you test them on the fork. When they're just about fork tender, you throw your, your corn and your fish in, and you, you stew that off into your bowl, peppers and cilantro, and just freaking dynamite, absolutely dynamite. A little bit of lemon juice works really good in there, uh, really good, or lime juice. Lime juice is another great addition, and I don't like to cook that in there. So you take a half a lime, when it's in the bowl, you squeeze that lime juice in there, and, and then you go ahead and uh, put your garnish on. And if you really want to take it a little further before you cut the line, take your your zester, put a little bit of lime zest, and float some lime zest on the top of it. Then swing your lime juice and then put your garnish. I mean, you can blow people away with that. And here's the thing. If you don't want to go out and catch a bunch of yellow bass or bluegills or whatever, you can go buy any decent white, white firm white fish from the store and you can make that. You know, salt water or fresh, doesn't matter. Uh, next one I have is whiting ceviche. Right? So this is a real simple one and almost too simple for some people's taste because people want to cook the shit out of everything. Here's the thing about whiting. This is true about all the members of the drum family, and somehow people are all happy to take take it into consideration and do it right when it comes to something like making black and redfish. But one of the redfish's cousins, which are the whiting uh, and and the the black drum and the sand trout, it's like they're trash fish because they don't want to take this into consideration. These fish are among the best eating fish in the world. If the second that fish comes out of the water, it goes on ice. And it never sits in water like ice water. So what I mean by that is either your color is stocked full of ice and all the water is going to the bottom and you keep it drained, and that fish is sitting on top of that ice, or it's at least it's in a, a Ziploc bag or something on ice with some ice on top of it. And it stays ice cold until you fillet it and when you or you prepare it however you're going to play it, prepare it and the second you prepare it you either cook it or you freeze it that i mean that second it goes from being stiff and cold to stiff and cold in the freezer one or the other or it gets really soft it doesn't taste bad but it just doesn't hold its it's it's consistently well consistency well for you so one of the great ways to do whiting another quick way is whiting on the half shell at the beach you have your grill going you're fishing you catch a whiting, you come up, you throw it on a, on a board on the back of the tailgate of the truck, zip, 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 the fish is still going, you see his mouth still moving, you, you figure out whatever's left there's maybe for bait, and the fillets go straight skin side down on the grill. And as soon as that fish turns white, and it looks like it's halfway done, get the hell off the grill, Don't. it's so easy to overcook. So it lends itself perfectly to ceviche. So what we do with ceviche, we save up a few of them, and some of you know what this is, and some of you don't. And some of you are be like, ew, I wouldn't eat that. Quick cry, because I'll eat it raw, actually raw. So you save them up on ice. You fillet three or four of them in one shot. You cut them up in little pieces. You put them in a bowl. You chop up finely diced jalapeno and cilantro. You put it in the bowl. You take a lime, and you squeeze the lime juice until you get enough lime juice that you can get all the fish coated with lime juice and have a little bit of extra. You stir it around gently with a spoon. You take the whole bowl, you set it in the ice in the cooler, you close the lid, and you have a beer. You bring it back out, you stir it up, get some crackers or something like that, you spoon it straight on there and eat it ice cold. It is fan-freaking-tastic. If you want to add a little more flavor, a little bit of minced garlic, have your peppers. If you're going to do this on the on the shore... Have your peppers, your garlic, whatever you're going to use in little containers already, so you don't have to sit there and cut it up in the sand and shit like that. You're really going to cut the fish, throw it in a bowl, dump the stuff on it, stir it up, about one beer in that cooler to give it time for everything to kind of marinate together. And you do that with just about any saltwater fish. You can do that with any saltwater fish, really, period. But just about any is going to taste good. Permit and pompano are awesome that way. Sand trout are awesome that way. I've never done it with hardhead or gafftop sail catfish, um, mainly because they're a little more work to clean. You get kind of slimy and you don't want to be slimy when you're you know, doing that. Uh, and they, they have such firm flesh that it doesn't really warrant that kind of immediate uh, treatment. But Cerviche is awesome. And then I also really like two things I catch on the shore not as much as the other stuff, but shark and jackfish. Um, specifically the black tip shark. I guess I skipped them some, for some reason on my list, so I'll give you a little info on those. But um, I'll usually take a shark, and the minute that it's caught, if I'm going to keep it, you hang it up from something and cut the, the tail off and, and bleed it out. And, and that's that's one of the best things you do is bleed out. Uh, get because what happens is sharks actually emit urea or piss through their skin, and if they're dying, they're, they're constantly doing this and they're 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 pulsing it through their body. And what you want to do is you want to end the shark. And bleed it out as quick as possible. And I said like cut the tail off. Not really cut the tail off, you kind of come where the tail is forward of where it's the thinnest. It's a little forward of there and cut deep down into it so you can kind of hinge it over and there's a there's a vein in there that you can find. And if you cut that and, and hang it up, or if you're in a boat, hang it over a boat, and while the shark's alive, you just think of it backwards from a chicken cutting the throat, right? It'll 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 pump the blood out, it'll bleed out really quick, and as soon as it's done bleeding out, you go ahead and gut it. And then I usually stake them out. Um, so, so that's, that's prepping the, the blackfish for steaks. And stake them out, you can stake them out pretty much the way I described staking out a, uh, a catfish. And, and when I'm talking about black tips here, I'm usually talking about fish that are about 26, 28 inches or, or really good eating size black tip sharks. A uh, larger shark, you're gonna take, you stake it, but you're taking more in the form of take a filet and then stake the filet. Uh, and in that case, you might want to skin it as well. So, so that's how that's prepared. Uh, a Jack crevel is another fish that people consider just to be a trash fish, an absolute trash fish. So um, they have this this red blood line, and it is pretty, I wouldn't call it foul, it doesn't taste good. It, it's not really as bad as people make it out to be, but it's not great, and it kind of runs down the lateral line. So you take your filet off a Jack, and you skin it like anything else, and then you you cut on both sides of that red lateral line, you cut that off, and then you end up with two fillets, a smaller one and a larger one, and either one of those just salt and pepper and thrown on the grill. They're they're just fantastic like that. You don't have to do anything special with them at all. Backing up because I skipped the, the the black tip sharks. Generally, the way that I've been able to do the best catching black tip sharks is either cut large pieces of whiting, a little bit bigger than what you would use for a smaller fish, um, or live like thread thin shad or something like that, and usually fishing in the first or second gut, depending on when, where and when they're running. And the second gut is usually better past that, that, that's past that first sandbar and that second deep gut. And uh, they really like live threadfin shad. I'm talking about, you know, like two, three inches uh, hooked in the tail so they bleed and struggle. Uh, they seem to like that better than anything else. The big thing with black tips, you're going to go any shark, a little bit bigger hook, and you need a steel leader. Cause they will plumb. I mean, a little black tip pup that's like a 12 inch black tip pup will cut through thick monofilament like that. I mean, right through it. So you need a steel leader. Uh, I usually use somewhere along about a two foot um, black steel leader, and uh, that's that's it for those. So I'm sorry I skipped that one. But grilled jackfish, grilled shark, and, and almost any firm ocean fish is really great. You just throw it on the grill and cook it just through. Uh, tuna, uh, those are fish I think if you cook it all, if you cook it just through, you overcook it. You want to leave it basically raw in the middle. Just sear the outsides or make sashimi. On that, I kind of alluded to it, but I will take wasabi, soy sauce, and ginger with me when I go to the beach. And usually the first or second whiting, I'll ice that sucker down. And as soon as he's stiff and cold, uh, fillet and slice and eat it as sashimi. And it's not going to hurt you. I mean, you're going to die. No, I mean, if people were going to die from that, everybody would be dead by now because people have been doing it for a million years. On that note, I say with most fish, just try it. No fish you catch in North America uh, that you cook will kill you. It might taste like crap, and you might not want to ever eat it again. Uh, I've tried everything. I even one time on a dare tried ladyfish. That sucked. There's no need to do that again. It was terrible. Terrible, and I don't think there's any way to make it good, but try various methods and see if you can make it good. Almost anything in salt water you can eat ain't gonna kill you either when it comes to fish. The salt uh, in our oceans is is such that it doesn't allow the parasites that live in the flesh to be there and cause us problems. On a totally unrelated note, a lot of people like to go out and buy fish in the store and make their own sashimi and sushi. If you're doing that and you're doing it with salmon, and that salmon is farm-raised, and that salmon farm is farming in fresh water, you're taking a health risk. So if you're going to use salmon for making your own sashimi and sushi and not cooking it, it better be wild-caught, or you better be able to confirm 100% that if it was farmed fish, it was farmed in salt water. And it never was in freshwater and it wasn't harvested. That's another thing. You want, you want salmon that's been harvested in freshwater, uh, if you're gonna use it as a raw product. I, I don't know how long it would have to be there, but my instinct would be you'd want an ocean, uh, harvested fish, uh, for, for sashimi. If I'm wrong about that, someone please correct me. I won't get upset. Anyway, I hope this encourages you to get out there and do some more fishing of your own and, uh, and, and just kind of open the door to what's possible without getting real exotic. I mean, There's something to be said for a bunch of uh, pan-fried bluegill or bullheads. And I have to tell you, as a kid in Florida, those were the two fish that I most quickly developed an ability to catch consistently. I'm talking a little kid, seven, eight years old, reading Outdoor Life magazine to learn how to tie a hook on. I had no one to teach me. And I played with different ways of making them. And what we had there, like here we have mostly yellow bullheads, There was this place called Woodmere. It was an apartment complex. It was up the road from the apartment complex I lived in. This is a little bit later, like 10, 11 now. And it was full of black bullheads. And these were nice size, like 14-inch black bullheads. You could catch them consistently on hot dogs, right, with a bobber just off the bottom, just like I told you. And, man, I ate so much bullhead and and bluegill as a kid. And I always cooked it myself and almost always on the grill because there was a whole, it stinks, get it out of the house, whatever. Um... And I just have an affinity for it, and it amazes me how people put these things down. And you, when you say, "Well, have you ever eaten it?" Well, no, everybody knows. Well, that's that's not very open-minded, is it? Like, so how do you know? Because everybody knows. So the person that knows that, you, that told you that everybody knows, did they ever eat one? Did they ever try it? Because there are some fish that are not pleasant. But they're, 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 they're actually pretty few and far between. I don't find mullet to be very pleasant. And I find mullet roll to be less pleasant. So I'm not Andrew Zimmer. I'm not going to eat, you know, um, some, some garbage that was buried in the, gro- fish head buried in the ground in Alaska for a year uh, and say, oh, that's, that's wonderful. No, I'm not that guy from Bizarre Foods. You know, so I do have a threshold of what I think is quality and not quality. These small fish, though, especially try cooking them with the bones on. Uh, because the bones create a sweetness in, in the meat when you cook it. Most, uh, if you look at a lot of a- traditional Asian fish dishes, the, the, the fillet doesn't exist. The fillet is the Americanized version. The, they, they, they tend to cook fish on the bone because they know they get the added flavor and sweetness and that there's less waste. When you fillet a fish, there's always that flesh that's there on the, on the bones. And if you're making fish stock, that's fine. But when you cook fish on the bone, the right type of fish anyway, and you flake that, you end up with a completely cleaned bone. So it's less wasteful, and you get a better utilization out of your smaller fish. And really check out this thing called shucking bullheads. I found two different guys doing it pretty much the same way. I'll put links to both of them on YouTube in the show notes. And I wanted to finish up with telling you part of what's got me excited about the bullhead thing. Number one, I can find places around here to catch them. I know places to go right now, but it takes me an hour to get there. So I want to find some place closer to to now home, because that's basically close to used to be home. There's lots of them. We're rebuilding my aquatic system, not aquaponic system. My aquatic system, and the aquaponic system to a degree right now, and the three tanks that I added to my aquatic uh, garden pond system are each about 170 gallons. And I played with some uh, channel catfish in there and some uh, red ear sunfish. I had a disaster at the last freeze, and the channel catfish were all saved, and the red ear sunfish are all dead. And I had about seven, eight inches of gravel in the bottom of them them, to create a filter system and all. And I decided, especially since I had to drain them all out, it was overkill, and I had my farmhand go into those three tanks and shovel out all of that lava rock and gravel and take it into the greenhouse and line the floor of the greenhouse with it. I have to say, for a young millennial, he did a pretty good job. When he comes back, he's got to even it out a little bit, but he did a pretty good job, cleaning them all out. And those three tanks are going to be basically, you know, three... 170-gallon outdoor tanks. And bullheads survive really well around here. And my water is perfectly beautiful, clean water. And they'll eat minnows like crazy. My little actual in-ground pond is, in the summer, loaded with minnows. I mean, you can walk across the pond on their backs almost. There's that many minnows. I can go down there in five minutes with a net and net up a bucket full of minnows and feed my bullheads. So I can st- start catching these bullheads, and anything that I don't think is big enough to do the, the bullhead shuck, Because we just created something here, um <laughs> the bullhead shuck, or even I just don't feel like doing it today, those things survive like crazy. I can throw them in two or all, maybe even use all three of those tanks as bullhead tanks. And then whenever I want to pan fry four bullheads for Dorothy and I, I, can just go out there and dip net four of them out and throw them in a pan. Now, we're getting into sustainability. I don't have to buy feed. I don't have to buy fish. I go take my pastime. I take the surplus activity of my pastime, more fish than I want to clean, or smaller fish than I'm ready to clean yet. I throw them in a tank that's there anyway that's growing me other things, and it maintains them or builds them up to a size that they're harvestable. And and this is something that, that my buddy David and I are, are looking more and more into. He's been doing this really intensively with his his property in Fort Worth for quite a few years now, and he's using my property to test some ideas, and I'm always testing ideas. And I'll, I'll let you know, kind of leaking this, sometime this coming year, we're going to be coming out with an intensive um, food production course that centers not just but also includes aquaponics and aquatics and what you can do in a small urban area. And it's going to be really freaking cool. And David is like a master at this stuff. So keep an eye out for that one. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll wrap up and remind you if you want to help support us, that you can do that by shopping at tspaz.com. You go to the survival podcast website and click on tspaz or just go to tspaz.com and click a link and you end up on Amazon. When you get to Amazon, you buy the stuff you were going to buy on Amazon anyway, and after you buy that stuff, they ship it to your house, it costs you the same money, you don't do anything else, and you've supported the show. Or, at t you can also click on the link to see our reviews of our items of the day. Today, we're continuing our project for 2017 for, for folks that, that don't have a basic gun maintenance kit, building out a gun maintenance kit. Last week, the product that I recommended was a set of punches, a really great set of punches for driving out pins and putting pins back in and things like that. If you're going to use a punch, you need a hammer. So today, I have a set of hammers for you. They're by a company called Novell. It's a three ball peen hammer set, and it's a two ounce, a four ounce, and an eight ounce hammer. the re- The reason I did this is I, you know, and I think about all the little the little things I do with my guns. The thing I reach for the most when it comes to a hammer is my little two ounce hammer. A lot of two ounce hammers are junk. They're garbage. A lot of two ounce hammers are really made for jewelers. They're not really made for things like we're gonna do with them, with a gun maintenance kit. Number one thing I reach for. The number two hammer that I reach for is a four ounce ball peen hammer. And when I reach for that is when I have something that's a little bit stuck and I don't want to come out and get a little more thump, a little more whack. I hardly ever use an eight ounce ball peen hammer on my guns. But when I looked at this kit, for about 54 bucks, and these are U.S.-made, drop forge hickory-handled uh, hammers with a warranty. Well-made, well-reviewed. I thought this is the set, because the way to look at it is you take the 2- and the 4-ounce hammer, you put it with your gun kit, and you take this 8-ounce hammer, consider it a bonus, and put it with your regular tools. And if you need a heavier hammer, go get it. Now, with gunsmithing, there are times when you want, like, what they'll call a gunsmithing hammer with like a a plastic tip or a brass tip or something like that on it. We'll have another hammer I'll recommend in the future that you can do for that. Or you might want something like a dead blow or a plastic mallet. There's a video in my review today of a guy that's a full-time gunsmith. It's all he does for a living. When I started researching these hammers, I came across his video. And what struck me was the first thing he said was what I just told you and what I've always said. Number one hammer that you use with gunsmithing is a two-ounce ball-peen hammer. So I have his video in that review as well. So you can see other types of hammers, and I'll be giving you my recommendations in future uh, item of the day. But this set's a great set. Now, that said, if you can go out and find a hickory-handled, straight-handled, Forged US made two ounce hammer for fifteen or twenty bucks and you only think you need that and you can find that locally, go do it. I did find one on Amazon that's well reviewed. One, it's like 18 bucks, and there's three in stock. So they'll probably be gone fast for people that just want the two ounce. Don't feel that you need to buy everything I say on Amazon if you can get a better deal somewhere else. Or if you don't need all of it and you can get a single piece of it that you can't get on Amazon somewhere else. One way or another. I believe this in a gunsmith kit, if you don't have a two ounce and a four ounce hammer, you're wrong. Period. And you and brass is great for what it does, and, and plastic and non-lowering are great for what they do. But drifting a sight with a, with a with a with a punch, knocking a pin out with a punch. That two-ounce steel hammer is the best thing for it, so that's why I'm recommending that you have it in your kit. And with that, let's get into our song of the day. I was thinking about a song for today, and this is all about fishing, and no deep meaning or anything like this, except I did mention my buddy, Hal Dodd. My buddy, Hal Dodd, loved the song that you're about to hear. I'm not even going to give you the title. You'll know when you hear it if you've heard it before. And if you don't, I'll tell you what, uh, a little bit into it, you'll get why. And it's just kind of a humorous, funny song. And it's by Brad Paisley. Well, I'll give you the title. It's called I'm Going to Miss Her. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, I... I love to fish I spend all day out on this lake And hell is all I catch But today she met me at the door Said I would have to choose If I hit that fishing hole today She'd be packing all her things And she'd be gone by noon. I'm gonna miss her When I get home Right now I'm on this lake shore And I'm sitting in the sun I'm sure it'll hit me When I walk through that door tonight Yeah, I'm gonna miss her Oh, lookie, there. I've got a bite, oh If I hurry, I could beg her to stay. That water's right and the weather's perfect. No telling what I might catch today. So I'm going to miss her when I get home. But right now. Shore. And i sitting in the sun, I'm sure it'll hit me when I walk through that door tonight. Yeah, I'm going to miss her. Oh, looky, there, another bite. Yeah, I'm going to miss her. Oh, looky. I've got to buy